And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And our second reading is from James chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. If anyone among you, is anyone among you in trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy, let them sing songs of praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lauren. Let me extend my welcome to Jen's uh, 
My name's Rowan. I'm the assistant minister here. It's great uh, to see you. If I haven't met you, I would love to say hello afterwards. Um, just want to affirm Jen's um, announcement to encourage you to come along to the Listening Well seminar. Um, it'd be a great opportunity for us to uh, consider how to take the next steps in being a community that cares and loves well um, those within our community, but also how we can uh, grow better as a community at loving one another as well. So I do commend that to you. If there is community groups that week, um, it might be that there's some flexibility that we could put there so that you can come along to that. Um, but we'd love to see you there. The other thing I wanted to mention too is I sent out an email um, weekly uh, just telling you folk what is happening in the church. If you're not on that weekly email list and would like to be, my email's on the back of the zine uh, that you received as you came in. Just throw me an email and I can pop you on that. But one thing we have announced is um, coming up, I would love to start a... I need to find a, a more savvy name for this, but a doctrine reading group of sorts. Um, sounds exciting. I'm excited. Uh, so if you'd like to join that, the plan is to meet monthly, uh, and it will be a mixture of um, some, some taught material, but then some readings. I want to do a bit of a mix of old and new, so we'll read um, some old greats as well. Uh, if you'd like to do that, I'd love for you to be part of that. Uh, again, throw me an email on the back of the zine. Is my email there. Um, but we're continuing our series tonight, looking at the book of James. Uh, the passage is there printed for you on page 9. Nope. What page are we on? 7. 6 and 7. There we are. Uh, so have that open, and there's an outline there also. Um, but we're looking at the theme of patience and perseverance, particularly in the light of suffering. Um, novelist Walker Percy, in his mock self-help novel, Lost in the Cosmos, uh, the main character says this, that he does not think that depression is merely a problem to be medicated away, but rather a rational response to the state of our world. It's tongue-in-cheek. He does not think that depression is merely a problem to be medicated away, but rather a rational response to the state of our world. And, and I love this honesty in one sense. It recognises that the way that our world is can prompt you know, a real sense of real deep questions as to why. Why is it this way? A rational response would be to just be depressed by the nature of our world. If you think about our, our last week, the events in the US particularly, again, you're just struck by the questions of why, why, why all this suffering? So I, I, love, I love his honesty, and as a Christian, it prompts further questions for us, doesn't it? Those why questions. Why would God allow suffering? Why does he not put things right? And these are good and important questions, and, and we struggle with these questions in two different ways. Now, one author describes it like this. We may ask these, these questions as armchair questions. Armchair questions, that, that is, we're, we're remote to suffering ourselves, potentially, and so they become a bit of an academic or a, a philosophical exercise, and we engage with them at the level of out here. Well, why, why would God do that and contemplate it? But the other way that we can experience them is what he described as wheelchair questions. That is, that we, we ask them from a real sense of pain and suffering. We're sick, 
uh, we might be suffering or we're, we're caring for someone that we love and, and we see them, that they ask these questions not just to kind of find some intellectually satisfying answer but because they've got tears in their eyes, they've got a limp or a scar from their own sufferings and disappointments or perhaps, as I said, someone close to them. And so the why question is, is really important but today's sermon doesn't address the why question in any satisfying way. It does in part, but not, not completely. But it does address the how question. The how question of if you are suffering, how do you bear up under it? How do you persevere in the midst of suffering? And realistically, we could probably reframe that question. When we suffer, because at some point in our lives we will all be wheelchair questioners, as it were, when we suffer, how will we bear up under it? So the text today says, be patient then, my brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming, in verse 7. James is addressing, as we've seen, the church in Jerusalem. We've been given a little bit of context. We read from verse 1. Last week we saw that James addresses the church who are experiencing suffering. They're experiencing persecution themselves. They were being mistreated and reduced to poverty by the rich, and life was hard. And so, in the midst of their hardness, they longed for relief. And James today tells them to be patient until the Lord's coming. And he addresses two questions for us in today, and these are the two questions that we'll be addressing in the sermon. How, how do we stay the course in the midst of suffering? And then how do we not get bumped off course? See, James' answer helps us today to think as we look at the church and his words to them, how we can bear up under suffering? How do we stay the course? How do we not get bumped off? Well, how do we stay the course? Well, first, he tells us to spend time with three people, the farmer, the prophets, and Job. Firstly, the farmer, in verses 7 to 8, you'll see there, it says, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. He says, look to the farmer. Farmers have to exercise patience. Farming is a case of, of sowing a seed. You might tend the garden, you might weed, but a farmer must wait, wait patiently, particularly in the ancient world, for the clouds to bring rain. But the, the farmer does that in, in a way that he's confident that the rains would come. Probably unlike some of the farms that you know, are experiencing drought here, we, we read that they wait patiently for the autumn and spring rains. These were seasonal rains that came. So what would the farmer do? He would sow his seeds, then he would wait patiently for the rains to come, for the land to yield its crops. The farmer has to, in a, in a sense, submit himself to this process. And what's James' point here? Well, a farmer must wait patiently. Rains, he has to wait for to produce crop. And what James is saying is in response to mistreatment and suffering at the hands of the rich, this church too is to exercise patience because of the Lord's coming, Jesus' return. And his point is that when, when Jesus does return, he will settle accounts and make things right. So they're to submit themselves, as it were, to that, that process. 
And what that means is that in the midst of their suffering, particularly as they experience suffering and injustice, well, they don't need to take things into their own hands. What they need to do is submit themselves to a process because the Lord's coming is near. There's an end in sight. And because of that end, we can be confident that we can be patiently endure in the midst of our experiences. Now, we, we, we experience this in principle all the time. We exercise restraint knowing that there is an end in sight. It might be a busy work week or a season at work. It might be marking reports because you know that the holidays are around the corner. It might be pushing through tantrums in the hope that children will be well behaved. It might be limiting the calories in order to shed the kilos. It might be hitting the gym in order to look buff. It might be tightening the budget in order to save for a house. We do it all the time. We, we, we restrain ourselves in the short term for an end in some kind. And the experience itself, the busy work week, the marking of reports, the pushing through the tantrums, they're not pleasant circumstances. They're unpleasant, but because we know that there's an end in sight, we patiently endure. And that's the principle that's at work here. But the reality is certain situations can seem more unendurable, can't they? Particularly when they might come from outside of us. And so, so what we need in, in those moments, particularly in light of suffering or disappointment, is a sense that there is going to be an end that is satisfying and, and, and worthy of patient endurance. And when James says that the Lord's coming is near, that is the end that is satisfying and worthy. Why? Because when he returns, it's a promise that he will set things right. Later, he's described as being the judge at the door. The judge comes to exercise right judgment. And so, they can, in patient expectation, submit themselves to God and his timetable, knowing that he will make things right when Jesus returns. But what makes it hard for us often, isn't it, to patiently endure in the midst of suffering, is it that the timetable is often hidden from us. We don't get to see it. And it can seem far off. And so when James promises them that they can patiently endure because the coming is near, well, well what does near mean? Uh, Jen kind of hinted at earlier in, in the um, introduction that, that we are a, a generation and, and our lives now in the West particularly um, want things instantly. I remember in... Um, in in England, they had, was, Amazon was quite big in England, and I got Prime. Prime was great, because things came the next day. Then I moved to London, and you had Prime now. And you could order it at like 12 p.m., and then by 3 p.m., they'd come in these little paper bags at your door, and it was like, yes! And I moved back here, and I'm like, where's my now? I want, you know, your order. You want something now. You want something straight away. And, and, and when James says that the Lord's coming is near, we have this sense that we want this immediacy, but it doesn't seem... To do that, we, we do the reports now because you get the holidays then. They're, they're, they're close. You hit the gym now and, hey, presto, you get, you get the abs. It's, it's, it's nearness, and, and we think that that means immediacy, but that's not the way that James speaks of nearness. It's not necessarily immediacy. Rather, what he's saying is that nearness means that little stands in the way 
before what he has promised will come to completion. In this sense, Jesus' coming is near. That is, in relation to the whole process overall. The day of judgment is not that far off, in the sense that the bulk of what needed to happen has happened. Jesus has come in the incarnation. Jesus has died for our sins. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has risen to the right hand of the Father. Nothing remains on his calendar, as it were, until he returns again. So in that sense, it's near. In that sense, we can patiently endure. But that's hard for us because we're often like, you know, when you're a kid and it's October and you're longing for Christmas and it just seems like an eternity away. Yet then when you're an adult, you know, Christmas rolls around and you're thinking, oh, I've got to fork out for Christmas gifts again? It's all about our perspective. And so James says, spend time with the farmer because such knowledge means that we can be patient and we can stand firm. Secondly, he tells us to spend time with the prophet in verses 10 and 11. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. If you want to know how to stay the course under suffering, James says, look to the prophets. And we read a bit about some of the prophets in Hebrews 11, but the prophets show us two things. It shows us that firstly, what we are going through in suffering is not unique to us. That can be quite an empowering thing. See, often, if you're anything like me, we can tend to think that our circumstances are unique, that we are the first to experience what we may be going through. I remember on our honeymoon, Naomi and I climbed Mount Warning. Um, It felt like a challenge, and it took it out of us, to say the least, but when we got to the top, we felt like we'd accomplished something unique. That was till some kind of inappropriately clad tourist in thongs greeted us as they're coming down the hill like they were going for their morning latte. You know, suddenly our uniqueness of what we'd encountered and done was put into perspective. And so sometimes it's like that, isn't it? We, we can think that our hardship is, is unique, that no one has experienced what we've experiencing. But James wants us to spend time with the prophets. He points to them as an example. They're a pattern of life, and as you read the life of the prophets, it wasn't the comfortable life. But the wonderful thing is that they did persevere. So James says, look to the prophets. They persevered in the midst of suffering. They stayed faithful. They have done what James is calling his readers, and us to do. It would be interesting in our next sermon series in Daniel from September 22, we'll be looking at the prophet and we'll see he is an example of someone who stayed the course, someone who did what God wants despite opposition, someone who waited on God's timing despite opposition from others. And so James calls his readers in these verses to look to the prophets, be encouraged, strengthened. They patiently stood firm. But more than that, as you see in verse 11, they are counted as blessed because of it. Verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. 
Our second reading in Hebrews celebrates these Old Testament prophets who stayed faithful under suffering. And they were called blessed. And Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. James has said in chapter 1, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. So we can look to the prophets because they persevered, but we can look to them as well because they are blessed, and Jesus and James promise blessing to those who persevere under trial. But again, we can, we can find this hard. See, we, we can think that life should be a certain kind of way, and so when hardship comes, we think it abnormal. We expect life to go smoothly. But suffering of one kind of, or another is to be expected. Perhaps the presence of suffering in our lives is not a sign that things have gone wrong, but actually a sign that things have gone normal. C.S. Lewis wrote this, We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, Blessed are they that mourn. And I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. But of course, it is different when things happen to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not imagination. It recognises that although we know that hardship is promised, it is difficult when we do face it. And perhaps that's because we expect things to be a certain way. I remember in, in England, one of the pastors that I knew, his wife in her 30s, got terminal cancer, and, and she wrote a series of blog posts, so a beautiful blog posts where she was writing about that she, she didn't have a monopoly on comfort, health, and wealth, that she didn't expect that. And I remember it really being striking to me because I think it, it, it made me reflect that, oh, I, I do think sometimes that I should have as a right almost comfort, health, and wealth. Now, we, we can sniff prosperity gospel a mile away, but... Often we're, we're really enamoured by lifestyle, aren't we? And we, we kind of expect that. But the sobering thing is that we were promised sufferings. Jesus himself promised that. But more than that, we're blessed. We're counted as blessed in our sufferings. Why is that? Well, because in our sufferings, God produces something in us. In his economy, which is not fathomable for us, they are the means that God uses to grow us, to deepen our dependence on Him. They are a necessary but uncomfortable part of growing to maturity. And so, in the midst of sufferings, we are to spend time with the prophets. And finally, James says we are to spend time in the book of Job. He says, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Job was a wheelchair sufferer. If you read the book, it's a long book. He loses everything, his possessions, family and health, his friends, rather than bringing company, company to him and comfort, he woes on him. He was from the wheelchair wrestling with the why questions. And, and it's a long book. I don't know if you've read it. It's it's, it's 40 chapters, 
where it goes over and over and over again on these things. And I think that's intentionally so, because in the midst of our sufferings, the why questions demand that wrestling. We can't be given a, a cute postcard in the midst of it or a pithy tweet to get us through. Job is a staggeringly honest book, and in it, through tears and pains and his laments, we see his perseverance. See, as you read the book, you do see that he, he does complain bitterly at times. He gives us an example of lament in that sense, but he, but he never curses God. He never curses God. And so James uses him as an example. He gives him a, a fleeting shout-out, as it were, an invitation to wrestle with Job more fully. James says, Have you heard? You've heard about Job's perseverance. And you've seen what the Lord has finally brought about. And if we read the book of Job, we, we see that his, his wealth was restored to him. But that's not a promise for everyone. The point is that Job persevered and that the Lord shows compassion and mercy. So to see if we're to stay the course, we, we, we spend time with Job. So as we consider the farmer, as we consider the prophets and Job... We can be encouraged to endure in hardship and persevere. And as we look at those, we see that they are a type of figure who would perfectly endure under suffering. It points us to Jesus, to his suffering and perfect obedience, which secured our right standing with God. His pattern was suffering and then glory. His suffering and death and resurrection mean then that we can we can trust him that he's going to be faithful to his promises, that he will return. And so as a farmer, we patiently wait for rain. We patiently wait that Jesus will come again and put things right. So if we're going to follow the course, we look to the farmer, to the prophet, and to Job. But how do we not get bumped off course? See, the reader has called us to bear up under suffering with patient endurance. The reader has spoken about Jesus' nearness in his coming again. And this nearness, it seems also, is the grounds for our standing firm, but also encouraging us to change in our behaviour, as it were. If you look at verse 9, he refers to it as, the judge is, is standing at the door. He's expecting that his coming nearness should shift the way that we behave as well. When um, one of our houses, we only had two bedrooms, and so the three kids used to sleep together, and it was like party central, and you come upstairs, and as you kind of just get near the door, suddenly, you know, it was all quiet, you know, the judge was at the door kind of thing, the hand was on the handle kind of, and... And it's that idea, and it's not so much threat, I think, because he calls them brothers and sisters, so there's a sense in which their eternal security is painted for us there, but there's a sense that his nearness and who he is means that our behaviour should change in the midst of it to help us persevere as well. And so, just three things to highlight as we think about James' insight into how we don't get bumped off. Firstly, Check your relationships, verse 9. James says, Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. 
It's interesting, in the midst of suffering, he speaks about grumbling. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. When facing difficulty, when facing injustice, we, you know, if, and, and particularly if that tendency to think that our circumstances are unique, it's actually easy to turn against each other. We can take our frustration out on others. We can vent our, our discontentment when others don't seem to be struggling. We can think it's not fair. And perhaps we, we put up a distance between ourselves and others because of our experiences. It's easy to take it out on others. But what's striking is, he says, don't grumble against one another. The judge is standing at the door. Jesus' nearness means that we should change our behaviour. We should be for one another. If Jesus was to appear... He wants to see that our relationships are in right order. So he calls us to check our relationship. And again, it's not out of fear or threat. Our standing with God is secure. But rather, if he were to appear, would we be ashamed of the way that we're treating others? And so James exhorts us not to grumble. Now, I think there's a difference between grumbling and drawing someone in on your struggle. I think that's an appropriate thing to do. Um, and so perhaps a response to, to this tonight is instead of grumbling, perhaps we need to, to press into others and to bring others into that context where we ask them to meaningfully pray for you and to help point you to patiently endure. Perhaps it's a commitment to being vulnerable, to pressing in in the midst of struggle, calling on others to pray for you. So James calls us to check our relationships, not to grumble against one another. Secondly, he, he tells us to check our integrity. Verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. And it can seem a bit strange as you read through this passage. It seems like this section is almost an appendage to it. Um, but many persuasively argue that the connection is clear. James, throughout his letter, has been calling for a consistency of life to aligned living. And the reality is, in, in the midst of hardship, the temptation is to be rash with our commitments and our, our speech. And that's a threat that could bump us off course. And James is calling us to integrity at this point. Check your integrity. And he does this through our use of oath-taking, um, making promises. Oaths are not universally condemned in the Bible. Um, the particular oaths that James has in mind here are those attached to the divine name. He, his point is, don't make rash promises or binding oaths that make it harder when you're vulnerable to, to carry through. Rather, rather let your yes be yes or your no be no. That's his succinct instruction. You need to say a simple yes or no. Grand O's aren't necessary. We should be able to do what we say. Integrity matters in the midst of our patient perseverance. And it's interesting is James, sorry, Jesus says the almost identical thing in the Sermon on the Mount. James, James and Jesus are saying that our speech should match our intentions. Integrity matters. So we are to check our integrity. And just as a side point, I, I was just really struck by this as I, I was preparing. And I, you know, I don't want the, the simplicity of this to, to miss us. Because such integrity, particularly with our, with our speech and what we say we'll do and the aligning, is, is such a powerful thing. 
and that could really transform a culture. One writer says this, if your yes is yes, then you have to think about your priorities deeply. If yes or no propels you into the future with serious intent, you must decide what matters most. Our words are significant. Every yes or no, in one sense, sows the seed of our future self. So we're to check our integrity. But again, this is, this is hard. I think it's hard particularly to, to, to give a yes and to give a no in, in our culture because it, it's, it's almost a courageous thing to do. Because to say yes to something or to say no to something is meaning that you, you will inevitably miss out on something. It's to propel you to a course of action and the commitment to carrying it, it through. But the gift of it is that it will be through a clear conscience that you'll be carrying through your convictions. It's just a side note, but I, I found that, that very striking. Think how powerful this small act of clarity with our words could be within our community. And so finally, he tells us also to check our joy. Verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. This is my final thought. James, next week, will speak on the topic of prayer, and particularly in light of suffering. But I just want to draw our attention as we close to this second part. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. See, as we think about patiently persevering, perhaps we're not in the wheelchair at the moment. How can we cultivate a patient faith in the good times for the wheelchair seasons? Well, what does James tell us to do? He tells us to sing. Singing is powerful. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, wrote, The power of singing was given to us chiefly for this, that our warmest affections might break out into melody. Because by singing, we, we do two things. We joyfully acknowledge that all good things come from God's hands. And praising Him is an acknowledgement of that. But secondly, it also saves us from the idolatry of taking the gift but forgetting the giver. And so, if we are happy, if we're not in seasons of hardship, we prepare for those seasons, thanking God, and by singing. That's how we don't get bumped off course. Or to close, James has encouraged us to patience and perseverance. He said to, to spend time with three people, the farmer the prophets, and the book of Job. He's given us three ways that we don't check out, three practices. We check our relationships, we check our integrity, we check our joy. James says this will help us stay the course with patience. James says that we won't get bumped off course. So what are we to take home? Well, let it prompt an examination for us or perhaps a meaningful conversation with, with someone else. Uh, what, 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 what can you take from this? Who do you need to look to? Who do you need to spend time with? Or perhaps what, what ways do you need to, to check your, your relationships, your integrity, or your joy? But perhaps you're here and, and, and you're not 
uh, a follower of Jesus yet in your, your faith journey, and you hear these words today about Jesus' nearness, these are sobering words. His coming is near, the judge is at the door. But take this as an opportunity to see this as good news. Jesus has done everything to make you right with God. He's died in your place, he's risen from the dead, and he gives us hope and rest and comfort in the midst of suffering. You won't suffer alone. So what do you make of his claims? Can I encourage you to examine them further? But as we close, I thought, as the band comes up, a way in which we could respond to this is to do what James has said, is to sing. And I've got the words, just a verse from a wonderful hymn which reminds us of God's goodness to us, our state before Him and His kindness to us in the Lord Jesus, it is well. So we're going to stand, sing together, it is well, and then follow on with Hear His Love. Please join us.